Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Ari Ingel, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. To briefly introduce our guests, first, we have the star of the film, Jesse Eisenberg, who is an Academy Award-nominated actor and acclaimed playwright and author. Jesse's film credits include Roger Dodger, Adventureland, Zombieland, The Social Network, Now You See Me, and many, many more. Uh, Jesse has also written four plays, including The Spoils, which recently completed a box office record-breaking run on the West End. We also have the film's director with us today, Jonathan Jakobowicz, a Jew of Polish descent who is Venezuela's most celebrated filmmaker and writer whose film Sugestro Express was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the British Independent Film Awards and was a New York Times critics pick in 2005. Jonathan also wrote and directed Ships of Hope, a documentary recounting the journey of Jewish refugees uh, fleeing Nazi Europe to Venezuela. Uh, other films of his include Hands of Stone, about the relationship between Panamanian boxer Roberto Duran and his trainer Ray Arcel, played by Robert De Niro. Uh, finally, our moderator for the discussion today is David Suiza, who is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. And with that, David, I will turn it over to you. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Jesse, Jonathan, love the film. I'm a refugee myself from Morocco. Uh, moved to Canada in the 60s. There's so much that I identified with uh, in the film. But as I was seeing you, Jesse, in the, in the film, I, I pretended that I was you. And I'm thinking, he's acting in the deepest, darkest moment in Jewish history. And I'm wondering, what does that do to an actor? I understand the professional angle, which is that, you know, you're an actor and, and you act. But at the same time, considering the subject matter, this have any impact on you? Um, yeah, it did. I mean, it was a completely unusual experience. Um, a lot of movies kind of ask actors to uh, do things that are actually in kind of like otherworldly uh, atrocities, you know, traumas of, uh, you know, like literal apocalyptic proportions. Um, this wasn't that. This was something that felt, you know, very kind of immediate because we were filming in the locations where it actually happened. Um, I lost family during the war, so it felt very personal. Um, and then on the weekends, you know, when you, you normally kind of come down from long days on a movie set of, you know, uh, heightened emotions, um, we were doing things like visiting the Dachau concentration camp or, you know, meeting other people involved in this story in some peripheral way. And so, yeah, it definitely has a kind of impact in that it, it doesn't go away um, it kind of, uh, you're constantly reminded of the reality and the people behind the story. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it just makes it so that you can't, you don't turn off, you don't turn it off. Not that we wanted to, cause we were all kind of, you know, indulging in what was very kind of personal in some ways, cathartic experience. Well, of course, you know, I grew up with Marcel Merceau, you know, he, so I, I really am in tune with what kind of a legend he was. That, was that daunting to try to, you know, learn how to mime? Because you were pretty good, Jesse. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so I grew up as the son of um, a birthday party clown. My mom used to wake us all up in the morning while she was tuning her guitar and painting her face like Marcel Marceau. And so it was kind of like, you know, in my family, if, you know, in some, you know, at least fundamental, but uh, kind of 
a cousin of miming. Um, and uh, in terms of the miming, I had this amazing choreographer who lives in actually actually lives in Los Angeles and works there. His name is Lauren Eric Salm S A L M. He's an amazing mime. Jonathan found him. Uh, to coach me. He's also a kind of chronicler of Marcel's life. So he has books of, you know, pictures mm. that only he has. Um, so I had a kind of two-pronged education. One was the practical craft of learning choreography. And the other was a more academic approach of learning the history of mime, of learning the history of Marceau. And um, yeah, it was just a kind of perfect experience of, you know, preparing to do something for a role you know, actors are kind of dilettantes. You dip in and out of little, you know, kind of hobbies uh, um, for movies and then never, uh, you know, attend to them again. And this was not that. This, I had like nine months of training and it was just, uh, it was as fun as it was practical. And your very last performance of Merceau in the film was so emotional. It wasn't sort of more the technical stuff that you had up front. It was more sort of the emotional side with the movement of your body and the emotion on your face. I think that was by design. Yeah, exactly. So um, the true story is that, you know, Marceau performed uh, for the troops, about 5,000 of General Patton's troops at the end of the war. He, uh, after the war, Marceau became a translator for the American army because um, he was good with languages. And um, when it was discovered that he has this skill, they asked him to perform. And so the movie uh, really beautifully opens and closes with this performance he did at the end of the war for Patton's troops. And uh, the choreography that I'm doing at, at, in this particular scene is kind of a, an almost um, modified rehashing of everything that you've seen in the movie of him uh, losing people close to him, of him signing up uh, as a fighter, holding a gun for the first time and feeling overwhelmed, um, of, you know, losing people and having to continue to soldier on. And so it's, uh, the movie really shows how Marceau took his life experiences and kind of, um, and how they manifested in these beautiful abstract performances. Uh, Jonathan, before I saw the film, I was saying, you know, I hope this is not going to be Life is Beautiful. Because anytime you see the, uh, the storyline, you know, the, the one line, like they say, of Marcel Merceau entertaining kids to keep them joyful during this horrible moment. But you went in a whole other direction. You honored the darkness in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's, it's a real story, you know. So there was, there was, it wasn't unnecessary to go any route you know i think life is beautiful is a beautiful film but i you know this was this was faithful to to the real story and to the horrors that they were experiencing and and we definitely didn't want to shy away and try to make it you know a, a just joyous film you know the the i think what the balance that we were trying to strike is is finding hope um in the middle of, of the world's deepest horror and and also about a guy who finds his own art by by using his skills to give children hope or to calm children down or to help them passage through the through the uh, alps and you know that that combination is what really got me from the beginning as soon as i heard about the story you know i found that in the film there were these uh real moments of intensity there was the the conversation that he has with Emma, where she's burning with rage and, you know, wants revenge. And he, you know, 
convinces her that we're here to save lives is even more important uh, than revenge. So I think that was an incredible moment for me. And also, when the Klaus Barbie asks uh, Jesse, you know, what should he do with his daughter to encourage her to become an artist? And then he just says, don't coerce her. And there was the image on the face, and you stayed on it for so long. And as if this, you shook up his whole worldview, because Nazism was all about coercion. So here he is, the most important thing in his life is his daughter. And you're now telling him that he needs to go in the complete opposite direction of what he's trained for. I thought for me, that was one of the highlights in the film. Did you have those intense moments in mind when you wrote it? Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, thank you. I mean, uh, there, there are two very different moments. You know, I, I think the, the dialogue with Emma was definitely the, the essence of the movie. You know, it's because at the end of the day, that is the, the question the movie asks itself and asks the audience, you know, what is it resisting? Is it, is it risking it all to, you know, potentially die, you know, killing your oppressors or is it risking it all to save the future generation? And, and happily, you know, Marcel and, and his entire group decided to, to, to do what was his hand, which was saving the orphans, serving the children, making sure that we survive as a people. And, and to me, that, that was the, the essence of it all. Um, the dialogue with Barbie um, is, is the, in a way, it's the, the face-to-face between the villain and the hero. And, and to me, it was important because there, it's, it's, as, it's operating in, in different ways because Marcel could also be talking about the Jews there. You know, the, the, more, the more you try to push us, the more we move in the opposite direction. You know, the, the, the more creative we get. And, and it's, he could be talking about the resistance as well. And I, I thought it was uh, an, an exciting moment to, to really get both characters to face each other and to remind not only Barbie, but the entire Nazi movement was the opposite of art, the opposite of creation. It was all about imposition. And, and to tell a military guy like that, that, that the, there is nothing creative that can come of what you're doing wow. um, is, is very powerful. And, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a scene that, uh, that in a way was developed in rehearsals. You know, as I started working with Jesse and, and Matias in, in Prague, Matias who plays Klaus Barbie, it was a scene that was not in the original script. And I, I was very happy when we shot it, we were all mind blown. Jesse was mind blown by how good Matias was, and Matias was mind blown by how good Jesse was in that scene. And it was a, it's a very simple moment, you know? It's a, it's a very simple dialogue, but it's so powerful. And, and they say it all, I think, in, in their respective ways. And, and I was very grateful. And it, it's one of those experiences that always makes me feel that sometimes as a screenwriter, you're as good as your actors. You know, that was definitely a moment that was created by my actors. That was the highlight of the film for me. And then right after he gets hit by his wife, you know, who challenges him. How dare you, you know, hurt a priest? How dare you go against God, you know? And it kind of, he's pretty shaken up. I want to go to the very beginning of the film, uh, Jesse, 
uh, was the question, the question that has been haunting Jews for thousands of years. Why do they hate us? And when, when the little girl, little daughter, who's about to see her parents be, being murdered, she asked that question. And in a way for me, what I found that I loved about the film was it almost doesn't matter. What really matters is not to wallow in the question, but really to decide what are we going to do about it, right? So this is what I found really interesting, uh, Jesse, in, in the film, is that, you know, there were moments in the film where you do kind of get into it, and there was that scene in the truck, you know, like Jews are emancipated slaves, and it was kind of a really interesting scene as well. But at the end of the day, at the end of the film, what are we going to do is really the question that the film answered. Yeah. And um, what was interesting, too, is that um, with regards to what you're saying is like uh, we were doing the movie at the same time as there was the Tree of Life shooting in Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, we were making a movie about, you know, something that occurred 70 years ago um, or 80 years ago almost. Um, and uh, and um, but it felt, you know, current. And so uh, what you're saying seems seems right. You know, what, what is the kind of value of contemplating the reasons why they're myriad they're often in conflict um they're nonsensical they're rational they're based on silly often non-truths so um what is the what's the end game and so in the movie the characters say the best way to resist that kind of hatred is to survive um and to your point um uh we, we were filming them some of this some of the movie was, was filmed in um uh, munich and um, which is like 20 minutes outside of Dachau, you know, one of the biggest concentration camps there. And I took my wife and one-year-old son there on the weekend. You know, I thought it was okay to take a one-year-old because I thought he would just be quiet and not know what was, of course, at one years old, not know what he was, uh, where he was. And, um, but what happened was uh, a lot of the barracks are kind of um, paved over with grass, you know, grass is growing on the former barracks. And so my one-year-old son, you know, thought of it like a park and he was kind of running around and laughing and I was chasing him to get him back. And, you know, it, I was panicked because I thought people would think I'm treating this solemn location disrespectfully, but Kind of what ended up happening is um, you know people were smiling at him, and I had this amazing revelation that just mirrored the movie's revelation, which is that this is the best way to resist. You know, here is uh, you know a concentration camp where they tried to destroy you know my son's ancestors, and yet he's running around literally having a la the last laugh. Um, and so uh, uh, you know, I, I think what you're saying is 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 quite profound and addressed in the movie. Yeah. Also, uh, Jonathan, I think the, there's, there's many different ways of resisting, you know, and you have the classic kind of activist, uh, but the way the movie highlights uh, resisting because of the main star in the film was creativity. So all the creativity that he had, and it was expressed in so many ways, right down to the moment where, you know, he puts a little beer in his mouth and then sees that one of the guys was a fire spitter. And then he uses that in a very kind of sharp, almost violent way. So here is a really creative person who's a clown, he's a comedian, he's got a real talent with art so he can fake passports. I thought that that was very compelling, the idea that the best way to resist is through creativity. Creativity is the ultimate of life, really. It shows that you're at the highest level of survival. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what moved me because I, a lot of, 
what you're mentioning is is true. I mean, those those are the things he did. You know, I mean, it's not it's not me coming up with these ideas. You know, it's right. me researching and gathering these events, and and it, it was mind blowing to see how he he genuinely put his art to work to, to in order to save children. And in many ways, not only did he use his art to save children, but he also found his art through the salvation of these children. Because at the beginning of the movie, you see this guy who doesn't know if he's a painter, doesn't know if he's an actor, you know, he's still trying to find his spot in, 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 in his discipline. But through this journey, he truly understands what he can do without words and with pantomime. And, and that is how he becomes the greatest mime of all time. And, and he, his connection to the children, I think, is, is the essence to why his entire career, he was able to connect with massive audiences, unlike any other mime in history. You know, that's a fascinating thought. I hadn't thought of that, because we often hear that certain things in life are so intense that there's the cliche, there are no words. And the truth is, when six million people get murdered, there really are no words. And it's just fascinating to think that that may have influenced his career of a life with no words, which is what uh, pantomiming is. So I, I think that's a really interesting point, Jonathan. He, he literally says that in, in interviews that it's, he realized later in life that the silence of his art was in, in a way similar to the silence of the survivors of the concentration camps. Mm. And, mm. and he just turned that silence into a way of expressing himself. And that's what's so unique about him. Well, it would put a lot of us out of business because we talk all day long. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I have a, since the crazy pandemic started, the tragic moment, um, the theme I've, done in my morning podcast is darkness and light that I find I, I can't just settle in one or the other. I can't just look at the light because I have to keep in mind the horror of the 70,000 plus people who've perished and the 33 million people who've lost their livelihoods. I have to keep that darkness in my mind at all times. And at the same time, there is the light that I saw in your movie, which is people rising up to the occasion. Uh, people who are on the front lines of the battle, and so many people kind of volunteering to bring food to the needy. And that's what I find is the light. And I found that the movie kind of really resonated with the times that we're in right now, which is really a kind of a dance, a clash between darkness and light. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the fact that the movie celebrates civilian heroes in the middle of a war I think really connects with the moment we're living right now where our only potential heroes are civilians. You know, the doctors are our only hope. You cannot nuke the virus. You cannot bring a tank and fight the disease. You know, you can only bring a person who went to the university and prepare themselves to save you. And and that I think is is something that really connects with the movie because it, it, they weren't soldiers. You know, Marcel is the most atypical war hero you can think of. It's a mime. And, and I think it, it was very inspiring for me to hear that people were connecting uh, to the movie in a particularly special way because of what we are experiencing. Because obviously when we were making the movie, nobody knew this was going to happen. But um, even though the movie, you know, 
every filmmaker would want it to be in theaters everywhere. I I tend to think that in a in a strange way the movie came out in the in the perfect moment when people truly needed to hear this message. Well, you had one of the toughest assignments, uh, which is to say something fresh and original about the Holocaust. I've been in the Jewish <laughs> news business for decades, and I got to tell you, there is uh, no subject that gets more attention, more press, more books, more articles, more conferences than the Holocaust. It is this unbelievably covered uh, subject. And one of the things we talk about in the Jewish world of journalism is that some of it becomes stale because we've heard it before, right? And then here you come after hundreds of movies and documentaries have been made about the Holocaust and you have the challenge of saying something new. And it must have been a daunting challenge. Um, I, I guess you were blessed because you had an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I never thought I could make a movie about the Holocaust, you know, in many ways because of what you're saying, in other ways because it was too emotional for me and because both my families were mostly killed during the Holocaust, so it was very personal to me. But this story felt, you know, that it was motion and not about extermination and and there was something that I felt was unique about it and, and worth telling and unlike the others, you know, and, and I, I do think that even though there are so many great movies and great books and, and histories about the Holocaust, there is unfortunately still hundreds, if not thousands of incredible stories that have not been told. And while it's true that sometimes you you can be alienated by how how much information is on the subject it is also true that if you talk to 16 18 year old kids they have no idea about the holocaust you know in in percentage that would give you goosebumps you know and and i think it's like 40 percent has never heard of auschwitz you know i mean it's it's really important that we keep telling the stories and and I, I felt it, this was unique enough and important enough for me to, to take on the enormous challenge of trying to say something new. And, and, you know, whether we did or not, I think what matters is that we are able to move and perhaps have been reaching a different generation that didn't know about this event. And, and that will spark their curiosity to learn more. Was it hard to film that last scene when they jump on the ridge? Oh yeah, it was very hard. I mean, when when you were when you become a filmmaker, they tell you there's two things you try to you should try to avoid. It's it's shooting with children and shooting in the snow. And we both. shot we shot with children in the snow, and and it was it was very tough. But you know what? We it was towards the end of the shoot. We were a very oiled engine, and the kids were unbelievable. All, most of the kids were Jewish kids from the. Prague Jewish school and and their grandparents were also Holocaust survivors so they really felt the story um, deeply and it was very easy to work with them because of how engaged they were and how they also developed a very close friendship with Jesse and and you know there wasn't an easy day on this movie but the forest and the and the cliff and all that stuff was definitely the hardest. But you combine a lot of emotion with a lot of technicality because it's a stunt, you know, you have mm -hmm. to rig the kids, you have to, you know, 
have a place for them to jump safely. And, and when you're working with kids, there is absolutely no risk you can take. We also had um, parkour kids, like kids who did parkour, who acted as doubles for some of them, mm-hmm. which was very exciting, you know, because those kids could jump, you know, like like no other stunt double could. <laughs> um, but it, it was it was great. I mean, and I'm and, and incredibly pleased when I see it because it took a lot of effort. That was an amazing last scene. We had no idea how they were going to be saved. Uh, Jesse, were there any uh, scenes that really kind of have stayed with you, some indelible moments during the shooting? Um, yeah, unexpectedly so. Um, you know, um, the... The actors who play my father, uh, his name is Karl Markowitz. Uh, he's an Austrian, he's not a Jewish actor, but he's played a million Jewish characters, including um, in this movie, The Counterfeiters. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, and uh, the actor who played my brother, Felix Mowati, he's a Algerian, he's a, uh, sorry, t- sorry, he's a Tunisian, his, his family is Tunisian um, uh, uh, Jewish, um, but he grew up in Paris. And um, I uh, had such a nice working relationship with them that the scenes ended up just becoming more resonant for me. Not that they weren't resonant in the script, but just for me in my off time, just more resonant and thinking about um, the little kind of compromises we make with our family in general, and then put that in a kind of such a heightened way under such extreme duress and such horrible circumstances. And the little kind of approval we want from our older brother or our father um, and how in these times of such crisis, we kind of, uh, uh, you know, risk our lives sometimes be motivated by wanting that approval. Um, in the scenes with the father, um, he has this secret desire to be an opera singer, but he's a butcher and um, kind of is so dismissive of my creative impulses. Uh, we learn over the course of the movie that he is dismissive of that because he's worried that a career in the arts is going to be so unstable. Um, we initially think it's just he's being a kind of you know repressive dad who just wants me to kind of just be more attentive to a good uh, you know a kind of more sustainable business. And um, yeah, these scenes just took on a different resonance for me as we filmed them and as I thought about my relationships with my family and how you know you look for approval in such um, you know seemingly petty ways and how um, on a grand scale like this about joining the resistance, about staying alive, about handling weapons. And, risking your life um are those same family relationships just kind of writ large what kind of reactions have you been getting from the film from some of your family and friends oh well you know it's funny i I, since the since the movie came out i've been in uh, i'm in a small town in indiana um but it's a university town bloomington indiana and so the movie is just like the biggest hit as you can imagine here because it's all kind of Jewish intellectuals in the Midwest. And so they, anything that's like Jewish and on TV, everybody watches immediately. Um, and, you know, it's a big art school, Bloomington. And so, uh, you know, I had like the, one of the world's best celloists. She lives on my block. Um, she's a teacher at Jacobs School of Music, which is the best music school in the country for this particular uh, subject. And, um, you know, she told me I'm using this movie in my class now because, the way Marceau talks about his art is exactly the kind of, with the kind of grace and seriousness that I want, that I'm trying to teach my students and he's teaching kids and that's what I'm doing. And so the reaction has just been 
unusually great. It's not because I'm not in New York City now where people are kind of referencing movie jargon. You know, it's people who are looking at it as a piece of history. I also, um, I live down the block from Alvin Rosenfeld, who's the, the Holocaust scholar, and he's been a family friend of my wife's family for the last, you know, 50 years. And so I'm kind of getting his, re- he's been tracking the movie for years. And, you know, so it's a kind of unusual reaction. And I would say for Jews in the Midwest, we're not too far from Pittsburgh, where some people have lost family and friends at Tree of Life, or across the street neighbors, uh, specifically. Uh, the movie is just uh, so special. And the fact that, you know, I'm here in this town, you know, makes it just that much more personal for them. Uh, Jonathan, are you preparing yourself for all these invitations from universities across America and Holocaust studies, which is a huge thing here in America? So you have to can't go anywhere. yourself. Yeah, you can't. <laughs> I mean, it's it's... I, uh, what Jesse brought up is really interesting because I could see this being part of curriculum. To, well, we, uh, with Jonathan, and also touch on, we were supposed to go to Saudi Arabia right now. Uh, with Jonathan, you could explain. That's to, right, yeah. I mean, we were, we were invited to the Jeddah Film Festival. It was uh, the first film festival in Saudi Arabia, and it was meant to be the first Holocaust film to screen in the Arab world in history. Um, obviously the festival was postponed because of the epidemic, but we're hoping that it's going to be, you know, brought back and then eventually we'll go there. Um, but obviously, you know, it would be an honor for me to attend any, any Holocaust education institution. I mean, if, if the movie can help, you know, bring this closer to any student, um, you know, it's you. You can't ask for anything more exciting. You know, it's it's such a it's such an important and difficult subject where so many great things have been said and done. You know, it would be a terrific honor for me to 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 make a contribution to that. Well, you know, my country of birth, Morocco, kind of broke the ice a few years ago, and they became the first Arab country to have a conference on the Holocaust. Oh, and wow. It, it's fascinating that what you said about Saudi Arabia. I would imagine that Holocaust museums, you know, the uh, Museum of Tolerance, Simon Wiesenthal Center, and the one in, obviously, the big one in D.C. and Yad Vashem, have any of them been in contact with you yet? Yeah, we, we've done some, some Q&As already with some local Holocaust museums. Um, I think the one in Washington is watching the movie right now and we're probably going to end up doing something with them. You know, I mean, it, it's been a little, you know, hectic and uncontrolled because of what's going on. You know, everybody's out of their offices and, you know, there's some delays. But um, we were planning to do a screening with the Holocaust Museum and the Venezuelan Embassy, which is where I'm from. Um, but, um, you know, every, everything will happen eventually a little slower because of all this thing, but um, they have definitely reached out and the ADL also reached out and everybody's very, very excited with the film and are supporting it in any way they can. Oh, I see this as a film that's got really a lot of legs. It'll go on for a long, long time. I mean, it's really timeless. The idea that hope is kind of oxygen for human beings. We cannot live without hope no matter how bad things get. Um, and I think this is really what the, mu- what the movie celebrates in the deepest darkness of the Jewish people. You found hope, but not empty hope. You found like real hope 
This is a real artist doing real things to save real children from based on a real story. I think that's why the movie is going to really hang in for a very, very long time. I'd like to see as many screenings as possible uh, throughout high schools and, you know, all kinds of uh, venues, really, because I think it's a wonderful kind of, you know, opportunity, like you were saying, Jonathan, to teach the new generation, people who, the 40% who've never heard of Auschwitz. And this is a really interesting original way, because I noticed what you did in the film is you had to balance the darkness and the light. And you, you didn't want to go too far in either direction. So you show the darkness, but there's, the hope never goes away because Jesse pulls it forward at all times. He's the one that really, he's the representative of hope. And no, no matter what, although he loved Emma so much, he was not gonna go along with her desire for revenge. And, and that kept the movie going right down until the very end when, when you wrapped it all up in your performance of Marcel Merceau, which basically said there are no words that are, that are needed. So that's why I think this movie is going to last for a long time. You must be proud of it, Jesse. Oh yeah, it was really a special project. Um, when we were doing that scene, um, the scene again that opens and closes the movie where Marceau is performing for Patton's troops, um, we were filming that in Nuremberg um, in a um, arena that uh, the Nazis built but didn't finish to hold rallies of, you know, scores of thousands of people. Um, and uh, it was just, it just kind of it was such a, such an eerie thing because of the, conf the because of the, um, you know, relationship between what we were doing and where we were doing it. And then um, I uh, flew my parents out to come visit me to watch the scene. Cause again, my mother was a birthday party clown from my childhood. So uh, she was kind of watching, my mom was watching her son do this, clown performance you know well uh, marceau would balk at the term but you know a kind of um you know a performance that is a let's say uh more sophisticated cousin of clowning and my dad was watching my dad lost his family in poland you know um my mom's family came to america first and uh so i think for both my parents it was just this very surreal surreal moment and so yeah the movie is of course more resonant than any kind of fictional film could be now jonathan you know um Jesse does not have a French accent. How did you end up picking him? Um, well, Jesse, you know, the, the story of his mother and the fact that he grew up watching his mother paint her face in white is something that I learned when I was writing the script. And I also knew that he lost family in the Holocaust. And I've been a fan of Jesse for many many years and there is um it's an important there is an there was an element of the character at the beginning um that i found very important that he is a reluctant hero he is not a guy who woke up that morning and said i'm gonna save the world is in a way the opposite you know he's a guy who is completely in, immersed in his own brain and wants to if anything change the world via his art you know and and, and his ego and you know it was very important to find an actor that can truly portray an arc of a person who ends up discovering his art by renouncing his ego which is usually the opposite of what artists do and you know Jesse is so good at 
at that, you know, and truly per, per, portraying characters who are geniuses and who are involved in their own head. And I thought it was very exciting to truly push Jesse in a completely different direction as the movie progresses and show the the generous, genuine side of, of a human being that is, you know, releasing all this ego. And I knew he was going to connect emotionally and, and I wrote it thinking of him and, and I knew the accent was secondary. At the end of the day, a lot of what this, this events of the movie that take place were spoken in Yiddish because the children went from were from Germany and Marceau and his and his group of friends were from Strasbourg. Uh, the only common language they had with the kids was Yiddish. So if anything, this movie would have had to be done in Yiddish. Um, but obviously that would have been complicated. But um Thank the you accent for not I doing thought, that. Um, but the accent I knew it was something that can be done I mean I've done um, accents in in prior movies so I know when when actors commit to it it can get done and and I I think it's it's really more a taste and and Jesse goes between a little bit of French a little bit of Yiddish accent in in the movie because Mm -hmm. I thought that straight up French accent can be distracting in a way comical and so that's why we didn't decide to go all the way there and also mix it up with a little bit of Yiddish. Also, I think the, the thing that I find interesting with art, art does not come at you in a frontal way. What I love about art, it comes at you through the window. It's from the side. So although, you know, he decided to uh, nullify his ego, he didn't nullify his art. And, and the, the, the creativity that he brought to the activism, to to the resistance, I think is what kept the movie really interesting. Yeah, exactly. Oh, sorry, please, Jonathan. Yeah, I think what what it was exciting is that he, his art suddenly had a purpose. And so it didn't come from ego. He came from the virtue, you know, of, of, being able to do something others cannot do in order to do good. Yeah, and I, I think also, you know, uh, an artist, especially a comedian, likes a response. And when you started getting response from the kids, you know, that very that scene with the, with the candle and even just getting them out of the, uh, of the truck, I think that kind of fed you. You know, you said, hey, I'm enjoying this. This is, I, I have an audience here. I have a purpose. And you saw that kind of really early on in the film, especially that scene from the truck. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I had rehearsed the choreography for uh, a half a year or more before we were filming it. And only when, and it was kind of like this oftentimes arduous, unfun, you know, experience of just doing something that you're not very good at you know, initially. And so when we were finally on set with these kids, you know, who are obviously real kids who are reacting a lot of times like real kids, um, suddenly it had a purpose for me because I was suddenly performing the stuff that I had rehearsed by rote um, and getting this reaction. And uh, it's exactly, I think, what Marceau experienced, obviously, with, you know, an added sense of, uh, you know, pure terror. But the feeling was like, uh, once this has an application, it changes the meaning of it, it changes the intent, you know, um, 
and it becomes something that you're doing for somebody else, which doesn't undermine the purity of the art. It, it just it just reframes it. Um, you know, I always think of this as an actor because my wife works um, in uh, poor schools in New York City, um, bringing arts education to underserved schools. And I have always have trouble reconciling going in, talking and teaching the kids because I think of my my profession as a playwriter and a uh, and an actor in such kind of like pure unadulterated terms and it feels strange for me to go and kind of talk about it as this thing that anybody could do and to try to teach it I'm just always kind of trying to reconcile the work that my wife does which has this immediately benevolent effect uh and the work that I do which has this kind of you know just which has which doesn't um have this kind of you know benevolent effect on the most vulnerable people in an, in an immediate way and uh, I think that's what Marceau, Marceau reconciles in the movie. Yeah, it's, it was an opportunity to really um, to find purpose in, in his life beyond yeah. just the satisfaction of, of doing his art. It gave yeah. art the purpose. Um, the, Jonathan, where are you living right now? Are you quarantining? Where are you quarantining? You and the rest of the planet. I, I live in Los Angeles. And oh, we're neighbors. I, yeah. I guess I didn't, I didn't know, know you were in Los Angeles. Yeah, I I've been in Los Angeles quarantining, and it's you know hoping that it's gonna start opening soon, like everyone else. And you know, it's been I think less horrible than most places, you know, compared to New York or London or Madrid, you know. And um, but I it's and it, I think it's also easier for a writer to quarantine because. I usually quarantine anyway, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I've been in, in LA. How about you, Jesse? You're in Minnesota. Are you quarantining? How's that inf uh, impacting your future roles? Well, there are no future roles, um, you know, for anything right now. Um, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Indiana, so we're in the Midwest. It's quiet here, you know, by contrast, of course. Uh, now you're a playwright. A, you're a playwright. Yeah. yeah so, so are you I could, using uh, this? opportunity to write yeah but you know I, well i'm actually recording this book i wrote for audible so i'm kind of in the second i'm in the uh you know produce pro, pro, producing part of having written something already but you know it's such a it's a you know in terms of having an idea for something you know like it's the kind of thing i know that when this is over not everybody is going to want to watch a story about a pandemic so it's kind of like but yet that's all anybody is thinking about right now so i'm like kind of feel a little you know un un uh you know, I don't have a good idea now. Luckily, we're, my mother-in-law ran a domestic violence shelter here for 35 years. And so my wife and I are volunteering there safely in a way that doesn't, you know, impact other people or uh, put anybody in a vulnerable position. But um, uh, we have something to do at least during the day. Well, I can tell you as a journalist, there's nothing that's ever come close in my life, my professional career, as this story. This is by far the biggest story we've ever been involved with. And it's just, uh, it's just really, there are no words to explain what we're going through right now. And because we're in the news business, we're constantly uh, covering it. So when I have the opportunity to cover a movie uh, like yours today, it gives me a break because it's 24 seven on the crisis and, yeah. uh, and the darkness and the light is coming. And there are, you know, certain fortunate souls who still have an income and who did not get infected. Um, and who have completely different concerns, you know, than those who are not 
who are on the, on, the, on the wrong side, on the other side, who have been infected and who did lose their livelihoods. So I see really there's kind of two Americas right now. And in the first America, sometimes we can get caught up with ourselves and talk about boredom and stir crazy and cabin fever and even positive things like, you know, trying to use this as an opportunity for growth, which is really a luxury that a lot of people don't have. And this darkness and light that we're going through is unlike anything I've ever seen. And we're not getting out of it for, for a while. And yeah. it's incredible that your movie, which kind of dances between darkness and light, came right at this time. And it, it so resonated. And what you're doing in Minnesota is you're injecting hope by going to this shelter where you're going. And this is what so many of us are trying to do. It's not enough for me to do my job. We need to feel that we can do something. And yeah. this is what's happening in America right now. So many of us don't want to give up. We don't want to wallow in the darkness. We need to feel that there's something. And you know, everybody's got a different skill. In, in the film, you had specific skills, but your brother in the film had also his own skill. And, and this is also what came across for me, was that we each have a gift and you got to know what gift that is. So on that long rabbi sermon, I think uh, we're going to see if we have questions from the audience. Let's see. Okay. All right. I don't see anything yet. They were supposed to text it to me. Anyhow, uh, what's your next project, Jonathan? Yeah, I see the questions here. Oh, it's, okay. I don't like see them. 25 Oh my God. All right. So please pick the, pick the first one. Um, could we get some family background from, from Jonathan? Um, do you see me while I read him or do I need to go ahead? Him? No, it's fine. Yeah, we can see you. So the question is, do we have any family? Can we get some family, family background, background from Jonathan? Yeah. Both my parents were born in Poland in the, right after the war. Um, my grandparents survived the war. Uh, most of their siblings and their parents were killed. Um, and they, after the war, tried to make a living again in Poland, but quickly realized that wasn't possible. So they immigrated to Venezuela and we went to, they made a living in Venezuela and Venezuela was very friendly to Jews until Hugo Chavez came to power and he wasn't so friendly and everybody had to leave. <laughs> well, well, actually I see 20 questions here that I'd missed before. So okay, I'll, I just want yeah. to make sure you got them. Okay, perfect. Okay, now I finally, I got them. I got them. Well, here there are reports that General Patton was not sympathetic to Jews. Any insight into that, guys? Jonathan? Well, what I, what I read is that the some of the treatment of the of the refugees by Patton's troops wasn't you know the one you would hope you know and and you know what i what i read is some testimonies that they they were liberating the camps they were liberating ghettos and you know people were sick people were dying of hunger and and the soldiers who had been through a war you know, we're not aid workers. We're not really prepared to deal with that crisis in itself. So the crisis 
continued for a long time. And there are some quotes from Patton that were disappointing in the middle of that. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say he, wa he wa had particular animosity towards Jews. I, I just think it sounded a little like, you know, more like American supremacy. Like, what, what do I care? You know, we came, we defeated the Nazis, let's go, you know. And, but, uh, but it, you know, there are certain things that, that I, I found in my research that were a bit troubling about Patton for sure. And Ed Harris mentioned that as well when we shot the scene. Well, I think it really worked that you had a real military man uh, honoring an artist. Jesse, there's a question here for you. Has the film uh, influenced your relationship with your connection with Judaism? Yeah, I mean, I dropped out of Hebrew school when I was like 12 years old because I didn't want to have a bar mitzvah because where I grew up, it was like having this absurd party and it just the whole thing was so disgusting to me you know we're just showing off and getting money i just hated the whole thing and so i dropped out right before the bar mitzvah so i actually had a bar mitzvah officially when i was doing research for another movie where i played a hasidic jew i was kind of going to this um hasidic uh temple um you know uh and and they and i put and kind of just asking questions as like a secular jew and so they gave me a bar mitzvah so that's when i was bar mitzvah so i i've had like a kind of unusual relationship with my own Jewish heritage through my work. This movie, because it's about an artist and because I'm older, have a son now, um, it was much more personal and much more kind of like, um, I don't know, it just, it kind of, it, it brought in my Jewish culture and history in a way that I just really loved, you know, because it told the story of artists and, you know, funny people and smart people, especially, uh, you know, in uh, and 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 the personal connection I have to Marceau, which is that our families come from a very, very uh, similar part of Poland, and so yeah, I kind of had this yeah greater connection to a part of Jewish history and Jewish culture, especially during this traumatic time that I felt a lot more of a kinship to. Well, I have to say, uh, there's something you guys did at the very end when the credits came on that touched me personally because on my block every Friday afternoon right before sundown we sing Shalom Aleichem, the whole group of neighbors. I thought it was just so inspired to just sing Shalom Aleichem, you know, behind the credits. Jonathan, was that your inspiration? Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, the, the most incredible thing is that the kids you hear singing Shalom Aleichem are the kids from the movie, you know, the, right. the actual kids you watch. Um, the, there's something when you work with children in Prague, they all play an instrument, they all know how to sing, you know, uh, but when we were casting them, it was very hard to find kids that could sing Shalom Aleichem, and that's how we ended up in the Jewish school, and we asked them to sing Shalom Aleichem, and they, they all knew how to do it. Um, the decision to put it at the end of the movie um, was actually, from my sound designer, who's German, um, who has had no idea what Shalom Aleichem was. And we were discussing what to put in the back in the credits. And he surprised me once when I got into the making stage and, and he played it for me. You know, Stefan Busch is a phenomenal sound designer, non-Jewish, German. And, 
and that's that's how he thought the movie should end. And of course, when I heard it, you know, I felt the same thing you felt. It was it's just simply the right the right spot. Well, that's a great little piece of trivia that Anju <laughs> kind of had that that insight, and I th I thought it was just uh, a really poignant way of ending the film with uh, a melody and a song that celebrates the angels of peace as we prepare to enter the Shabbat, just kind of this timeless, holy moment that it was just really, really inspired. I think on that note, we promised you an hour and we're almost there, although we have two minutes for one more question. Oh, they want to know what are you working on next? I think we already kind of worked on that. Uh, and Jonathan, why did you feel the need to add in the scene with the gay man being beaten as opposed to perhaps him saying, we have a Jew in our midst? Because Barbie became famous by dismantling the homosexuals networks in, in Berlin. Mm -hmm. and, and I thought it was important also because it, it's, it's often tough to explain to people that every time minorities are being attacked you know, or, or they're in intolerance towards minorities, we're all in the same boat, yes. you know? And, and I thought it was, when I learned that Barbie dedicated the beginning of his career to fight homosexuals, I thought it was a, a beautiful thing that I don't think I've seen in a movie about the Holocaust, how, you know, they were also against homosexuals and, and they also exterminated a ton of homosexuals. And it usually goes together, you know, and that's why when I, when I see a, an, an anti-Semitic gay or an homophobic Jew, I'm always like, you, you, you don't realize that you are, we are in the same team, you know, when they come for you, they're going to come for me. And when they come for me, they're going to come for you sooner or later, you know, it's the same people that hate us. And, and I thought it was an important part of Barbie's journey and it belonged in the movie. I'm glad we touched on this. I want to thank both of you really before, for, before, for creating before, this movie and go before ahead we go I, I just sort of end on a slightly uplifting note um because this conversation is absolutely amazing just to get briefly because everybody's stuck at home isolating i just wanted to see what you guys are maybe watching reading or listening to right now so jesse any recommendations of of tv shows or films that you're watching that you recommend for other people to check out uh yeah actually there's um a friend of mine from from IU, Bloomington here, uh, is this director, Eliza Hitman. She has a new movie called Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which is just a really brilliant movie, which is also streaming now. Great. And Jonathan, what are you, what are you watching? Um, I just watched yesterday for the fifth time Uncut Gems. You know, I, I really love that movie. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Love it. Uncut Gems. And David, what are you what are you watching these days? Oh, you don't want to know. I'm gonna watch. <laughs> Just finished. Uh, you really want to know? Give give us one thing. Well, I love love old movies. So okay. last night I I watched um, Sweet Smell of Success with Tony Curtis and Burt Lancaster, and now I'm watching A Face in the Crowd. Got it. Uh, you you gotta love Kazan. the classics. 
Yeah, I just I, just, I, I love old movies, but but this I I gotta say, Resistance really moved me, guys. I want to just personally thank you for creating this this film, and it's gonna move a lot of people, God willing. Yeah, and I think every everybody at home, if you have not seen it yet, obviously after the discussion, you know it's a must see film. It's a powerful film. It's an impactful film, um, and it's a, a story that many of us never knew about and uh, really important film that it's out there. So I want to thank the both of you for making it, David, for moderating this. Um, I also want to thank the Dr. David M. Milch Foundation for sponsoring this event, and IFC Films and Mean Streets Management for helping put on this uh, a panel today. Um, once again, do yourself a favor and go watch this film. You can find a link on our Facebook page, and you can find us at ccfpeace.com, ccfpeace.com, or creativecommunityforpeace.com. Once again, we're a nonprofit organization, so we rely on donations. Uh, so we would love for you to, uh, you know, check out our website and, and consider giving. Uh, we know this is tough times for everyone. Also, please make sure to stay in touch. We have a number of amazing panel discussions coming up, such as this one on Wednesday, which Matthew just put on the screen, which is discussing coexistence through music featuring the legendary David Broza and Palestinian artist Mira Wad. Uh, we hope you can join us then. Uh, thank you, everybody. Please stay in touch, and we hope to see you soon. Take care.